I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this. This is something that uh, is distinct in my memory. Uh, I don't know why. I don't remember a lot of things from my childhood. Um, But this memory, I remember. I carpooled with a guy that lived a couple streets from me uh, in elementary school. And his dad was one of those really stern, scary guys. Like this, you know, he's an Asian dad, you know, just really stern. And he wouldn't really yell at us because we weren't his kids, but it would kind of extend to us sometimes. And, And I remember he was driving his minivan and something had happened in their home. I don't even remember. And so he was asking his two boys that were in the car, and he said, hey, who, who did this? Why did this happen? And my classmate, who was kind of one of those guys that everyone kind of picked on, you know, even in elementary school, uh, Darren was his name, and he goes, it wasn't me. And his dad just lost it. He started screaming. He said, I didn't ask if you didn't do it. I said, who did it? Right? Why do you always say it wasn't me? That's all you care about. And I, I remember that because it was really scary and strange. Uh, <laughs> But also because now I have three kids of my own. The oldest is only six. And they do that a lot. Now, as adults, we know that's not really something you do, right? Someone says, hey, you know, the, you know your boss comes in and says, we lost this report or we lost this client. No, you know, you imagine just this room filled with 20 cubicles and some guy stands up, wasn't me, right? You'd be like, what's this guy's problem, right? We just don't do that. It's just not something that mature adults do because it's just not the right thing to say, because that's not what they're asking. No one cares who didn't do it. They're asking whose fault it was. But this morning, I actually want to turn the tables a little bit and talk to you about a situation in where it is good and proper and right to always say and believe it wasn't me. In fact, what I want to talk to you about this morning is something that is so important That anything in your Christian life, whether it's the love for your church, whether it's a love for your family, whether it's evangelism, whether it's service, all of it is totally based on what I want to talk to you about this morning. In fact, your very existence is reliant upon everything that we're going to talk about this morning. And that is simply grace. Grace. Would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1? verses 15 and 16. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 will be our passage for this morning, and I'll be uh, reading from the New American Standard this morning. Chapter 1 of the book of Galatians, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes this, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. What we see in this passage is Paul defending his apostleship. If you are familiar with Galatians, you know it's a very stern, it's a very harsh book. Uh, There were these Judaizers that were coming in and influencing these believers so that they were tempted to or were even straying into a legalistic Jewish mindset. Uh, Circumcision was the main issue there. And if you go back a little bit, Paul is saying that he received the gospel from Christ himself. And most of you are probably familiar with the unique conversion experience that the Apostle Paul had. 
And he says, so the source of this was not man, but Christ. And in context, he goes on to talk about his previous way of life. He explains how how he was a legalist, how he was following the law, how it wasn't grace, how it wasn't justification by faith alone. And he's basically showing and setting a foundation that there was nothing inherent within him that would cause him to seek justification by faith. Everything he was raised with, everything that he was taught, everything that he was teaching was all about works. Works righteousness, do good enough. Which, by the way, every single religion in the world, except for true biblical Christianity, teaches works righteousness in some form or faction whether it's Catholicism, Islam, Taoism, Buddhism, whatever, they all teach some sort of works righteousness. It is only in the scriptures that we find this plan that could only be created by God. I mean, think about it, right? As believers, we're used to the gospel, but it's pretty mind-blowing that God would send his son, which we know in our understanding of the Trinity was himself, to die for our sins. I mean, no man would come up with that plan. The best man can come up with is, works righteousness. If we are good enough, maybe, hopefully, we'll go to heaven, we'll be reincarnated as something better, etc., etc. But you, you understand this. And so in that context, we go on to see this passage, and we'll see how Paul defends his apostleship by giving God all the credit. In other words, by saying in his apostleship, in his life, in his ministry, in his salvation, in his very existence, it wasn't me. It's grace. It's grace. And so this morning, very simply for our outline, I want to give you four facets of saving grace. Four facets of saving grace and the very definition of grace means that it is not earned, but it is given. It is the truest sense of a gift. And I think we get confused with that in our kind of modern circumstances, right? We kind of see our Christmas bonus from our company as a gift, but you kind of earn that, right? I mean, you work for them, you put in the hours, and they, a lot of you, your Christmas bonus is gauged by how well you do during the rest of the year. That's not really a gift. You've earned it. Grace, especially when it comes to salvation, is truly a gift, You don't deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. And throughout Galatians, as Paul defends his apostleship, he has spoken in the first person. He says, I would have you know, I neither received it from man. I was taught it. I received. I used to persecute. I was advancing in Judaism. But now when he switches to talk about his new life in Christ, he gives the credit where credit is due. He switches from I to God emphasizing once again the true reality and definition of grace. And so let me jump in and give you our first facet of saving grace. And because of the, the way Paul changes his tone and focuses on God instead of himself, all of our points, as you see in your bulletin, begin with God. Facet number one, God's completed decree. God's completed decree. Let me read the beginning of verse 15 again for you. He says, but when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb. The word but connects us to the previous verse where Paul speaks about his former zeal in Judaism, the previous verses rather. And now he speaks of a reality 
and this is a little tricky, so, so stick with me, a reality that existed that whole time, even when he was focused on and following Judaism, but was not put into effect until recently in, in the context of when he is writing this. Set apart means to determine beforehand. It means to devote to a special purpose. Now, when you look at all of Paul, Saul's life, obviously he was not set apart to destroy the church, which was what his focus was before his conversion. We're speaking here of his salvation and also of his ministry as an apostle. And as we will see in a bit, the salvation from God always leads to service for God. Salvation from God always leads to service for God. And so what Paul is saying is before I was even born, God chose me for a special purpose. And again, it wasn't to destroy the church. It was, in fact, to be a follower of Christ and his particular ministry as an apostle. Now, the significance of God doing so before Paul was even physically born means it was done before Paul had any desires or decisions of his own. He wasn't even born yet. A baby in the womb doesn't make decisions. He isn't isn't born, you say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? You ask him that a few years later. Paul, before he was born, had no principles, he had no impulses, he had no thoughts or actions, and yet it was at that time that God set him apart. This means that this was entirely of God, without any influence or bearing from Paul's own efforts. In other words, it was grace. It was grace. The point of this is to reiterate and even amplify what he said at the very beginning of Galatians. If you look at verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but this is the doctrine of election. There are three types of election when you look at it theologically. Uh, There is the election of a nation to be his, such as the nation of Israel. There's a person, the election of a person for a specific uh, purpose, King David, the prophets. But most commonly when we talk about election, we are talking, of course, about salvation. Salvation. Listen as I read Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So this goes even further back. It wasn't just before you were born. It was before anyone was born. It was before even the creation of the world. And for God's good pleasure, he did this. He chose us in him. Turn to Romans 8. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Eighth chapter of Romans, starting in verse 29, says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. 
And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And we see this chain of events, right, in the process of salvation. And all of this was determined in eternity past. It was all God and not us. By the time we were conceived in our mother's womb, what God willed and determined had already been decided. It was complete. This is so important for us. And I understand, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, uh, sitting under John's solid preaching and Isaiah's solid preaching, this is nothing new to you. But how do we live? How do we treat other believers? How do we look at the unbelieving world? How do we look at Trump or anti-Trump people? How do we look at politics? Do we get arrogant? Do we get cocky? Do we think we're better than others because we know better? Doesn't that throw away grace? Doesn't that somehow say, I had something to do with this? I'm so smart. I know better. I would fix this country. Or is it saying, man, I'm just a dummy. I'm just a fool, but God. It's all grace. Don't get judgy about other religions. Don't condemn them. Don't think you're better than them. Because it's grace. If the Bible taught justification by works, then sure, brag away. Yell at the Muslims. Yell at the Catholics. Call them dummies. Call them fools. But you know what? It had nothing to do with you. You can't even claim that you are some sort of genius that at six months of age you made the decision for Christ because that was decided before you were even born. And this all falls under the reality of God's sovereignty and predestination and election. We must be careful as we can in our sin become lazy and look at this God's sovereignty and the doctrine of election and go to two extremes. And I want to read a quote for you that explains these two extremes. It's a word of warning. Seen in the wider context of biblical revelation, the doctrine of election is no cause for either presumption or laziness. It is neither a steeple from which to view the human landscape nor a pillow to sleep on. It is rather a stronghold in times of temptation and trials and a confession of praise to God's grace and to his glory. In other words, it doesn't make us better than other people inherently. And it's not an excuse to say, let go and let God. God will take care of it. Right? We ever made that excuse in evangelism? You had that perfect opportunity to share the gospel And we walk away and we appease our guilt and say, well, maybe he's elect. And if he's elect, God will save him. My friends, we all love the same God here. And can I tell you, don't you dare abuse God's holy word to excuse your sin. We can't be lazy because of God's sovereignty. We can't get arrogant. And this leads us to our second facet of saving grace, God's categorical determination. Look at the second part of verse 15, back in Galatians 1. 
Paul writes, and called me through his grace. Now, although God already chose Paul before his birth, Paul lived, as we know, a life separated from God. In fact, trying to kill the followers of God. And it wasn't until that fateful day on the road to Damascus when Jesus revealed himself to Paul that God's election of Paul was put into effect. Let me explain this concept to you. This is not a political statement, okay? This is reality. On November 8th of 2016, Donald Trump was elected to be the president of the United States. However, the next day on November 9th, He was not the president of the United States. Barack Obama was. It wasn't until January 20th of this year that he actually became and was inaugurated into the office of the president of the United States. And so from November of last year until January of this year, Donald Trump was the president-elect. Already a done deal, but not in office yet. And in the same way, though Paul was called before he was born, he was already elected to be a Christian, but it wasn't until later in his life that he was actually saved and that election was put into effect in his justification. You could say he was Christian elect, right? He was an apostle elect, Right? Those unbelievers out there who still have not given their lives to the Lord but are elect in God's plan, they are Christian elect. They don't even know they're going to be Christians. But someday they will be saved. So it's the same with us. Though you may not have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior until you are 25 years old, God chose you long before. God chose you before there was even a thing called time. But on a specific day, when you were 25 years old, God took that election and put it into effect by calling you. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, this calling unto salvation and service is seen throughout the scriptures. And it's seen specifically with similar terminology in the Old Testament. Just listen, Isaiah 49.1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, same terminology, from the body of my mother, he named me. Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And here again in Galatians, Paul attributes all of this to God by saying that by being set apart as well as being called, it was all through God's grace. Paul saying, no matter how much you may think I'm a great person, it had nothing to do with me. It wasn't me. And this call is categorical, meaning it is undeniable, it is absolute. It is the doctrine that Calvinists call irresistible grace, which is also known as God's effectual call. In other words, when he calls you, when he saves you, it's going to happen. God is sovereign. And just as you had no choice in the matter, when he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. 
And every time you see the word call in the New Testament, in the context of salvation, it speaks not of a general outward call, but an internal saving act of God. That's how significant and important it is to God for you to understand his work in your salvation. That even the terminology that we as believers today so easily just read by and pass over is God specifically reminding us it had nothing to do with you and how good you are. It was all God. Let me give you a third facet of saving grace God's completed decree we've seen, God's categorical determination. Thirdly, God's contented disclosure. God's discontented disclosure. Look at the end of verse 15 into the beginning of verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Now here Paul mentions God's pleasure. Literally his delight and determination. Again, it emphasizes God's initiative, but also God's disposition in doing so. And in this single word, we learn of God's attitude in all of this. He didn't do it begrudgingly, saying, eh, I guess I'll do it. I created this people. I should, you know, there was the fall. I guess I should save some. I guess I'm kind of lonely in heaven. Got to need some people up here. No, it was his pleasure. And when you understand your sin, and I'm not just talking about before you were saved. Even this morning as you got frustrated with the kids because they were dragging their feet coming to church. As you were somehow judging the people who buy snacks or whatever it was. Angry because the person you like doesn't, didn't say hi to you this morning. Even your sin on a moment by moment basis today should blow you away when you recognize that God's calling of you was his pleasure. He wanted to do it. He delighted in it. He loves you. I mean, I don't, I don't use that word a lot about myself. There's not a lot that I say, man, I really take pleasure in this, right? I mean, it's one of those big words. God wanted to do this. It was his joy to do so. Now, Paul's conversion experience was very unique to him and that God or Christ spoke directly to him. But you have to understand this. As a Christian here this morning, the means by which you even heard the gospel was an extension of God's grace. It doesn't matter if it's through your parent. It doesn't matter if you heard it on TV. You, you picked up a Bible tract out of a, a mud puddle at the bus stop. It was God's grace. It was God's grace And my friends, even as you look back at your former life, even the times you heard the gospel and with with profanity coming out of your mouth, you violently rejected the gospel, that was God's grace that you heard it. And if you are an unbeliever here this morning, and you're sitting there going, when is this guy going to stop preaching? You're getting bored. You're getting annoyed. The fact that you can hear anyone telling you about God's grace is, in fact, his grace. Because I want to emphasize to you that it's not just in salvation that we see God's grace. It is all the time. And yes, even unbelievers are recipients of God's grace constantly, always. Even now as a believer... No matter how often you have heard these theological terms explained, 
you are hearing because God is showing you his grace. And if hearing the gospel is God's grace, what are you denying unbelievers when you refuse to share the gospel? God's grace. So this is God's contented disclosure, that it was his pleasure to disclose himself to us, to Paul. Let me give you a fourth and final facet of saving grace because there's a reason that he revealed all of this to Paul. The end of verse 16 gives us God's consequential designation. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The so that there connects Paul's duty to God's revealing himself. The so that is that he particularly and specifically could preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now we know that Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He calls himself that in Romans 11. Then in 1 Timothy 2.7, he writes to Timothy, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now this is a huge deal. They talk about God's grace. Because one of the biggest aspects of grace from God is that he opened up salvation in his plan to non-Jews. I'm just a visitor here. I'm looking around. I don't think there are many Jews here. And so we need to be thankful that as Gentiles, that we are, can be saved. And to show how important this was to him, to help with this endeavor, God assigns the most prominent apostle to be the apostle to the Gentiles in case there was any doubt that he desired the Gentiles to be part of his plan. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. If you were to ask me what is my favorite chapter in the Bible, it would be Ephesians 2. That is also a fact that you have no need to know. I don't even know why I said it. It's so important that you know your guest speaker's favorite chapter in the Bible. You know that, right? Anyways, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We're going to read through verse 22. And I, I like this chapter. And actually, it's funny. This is a great chapter on ecclesiology, the theology of the church, right? I had no idea. I got saved in junior high. I had no idea until I went to seminary. The reason I always have liked this chapter is because it reminds us of who we once were, which reminds us of our sin, but that also reminds us of the greatness of God's grace. Let me read this for you. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, this is just titles for Gentiles and Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separate from Christ. Listen to these strong words. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall 
by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. This is the church, right? Jew and Gentile in the church, saved in the same way. Jews are not saved even today by works. It is through Jesus Christ. And so he's saying Jew and Gentile were separate, and now he made the two into one new man because the law is what separated us from the Jews. Go to verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Do you catch that change there? Enmity, far off, strangers. And now... No longer strangers, no longer aliens, but fellow citizens. We are of God's household friends. This is grace. Now earlier, when talking about God's calling, we saw that both Jeremiah and Isaiah used the same womb terminology of being called. And it's interesting because both those passages go on to speak of these prophets reaching out to the Gentiles. Jeremiah is called a prophet to the nations in Jeremiah 1.5. Isaiah is called to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 49.6. And so we see that even among the prophets of the Old Testament, God's plan for the nations outside of Israel was made evident. And it can be said that Paul, post-Christ, is continuing the ministry and calling of these prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. So let me break this down for you. On the micro level, what we are seeing is God saving Paul so that he can go on and minister to the Gentiles. On a macro level, we are seeing the continuation of God's plan from the Old Testament on through the ages and culminating in the apostleship of Paul. I know there's micro, right, and there's macro. I don't think there's a third, but I'm going to invent a third. On the mega level, okay, the biggest level, what we are seeing is that all who are saved are called to service. You read the New Testament, they'll go hand in hand. The idea of someone being a Christian and not serving is simply not in the Scriptures. It doesn't exist, Now, it doesn't mean serving up here or serving back there. You know, service is not just on Sunday mornings, right? It's 24-7. In fact, in many ways, those of us who have roles on a Sunday morning, we need to really guard ourselves that we don't fall into just serving on Sunday mornings, that we need to be doing it constantly. And, And Galatians goes on to talk about that. So... As a believer, you have to understand, if I can put it negatively, God does not call anyone to salvation that he does not call to service in some way. You were saved so that you could serve God, serve his people, 
and serve the world. And then later in, in Galatians, he says, do good to all people and especially those of the household of the saints. So even unbelievers, we are to do good to them. And even Jesus says that, right? In the salt and light passage, he says, do your good works before men so that they will see them and glorify your God in heaven. But of course, our priority is to be those within the church. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's Paul so that. He gets it. I was saved so that I could do this. And so in all of that talk about grace, we need to get practical and you need to ask yourselves individually. That's one of the things. You know, as as a preacher, you throw these questions out there and it's easy because I've done it, sitting in a congregation in an audience to shrug it off. You know, it's just a general question. It's not for me. This is for every one of you. Every one of you, as you're driving home, as you're eating lunch, you need to think, what is your so that? What is your service? Where is it? What is your spiritual gift? Everyone's given a gift. You may not know it, but you have one. It's part of the package deal, right? When you got a job, they give you this package deal, right? Insurance, company car, a salary, a desk, all that. When we got saved, we got a package deal too, right? A place in heaven, blessings, salvation, all those things. And part of your package deal was a spiritual gift of some sort. What are you doing? Right? We, we, we so often praise God for his grace and then hypocritically do nothing about it. Do you not believe that God is sovereign? Do you not believe that the people within your spheres of influence God put there for a purpose? You know, I, you know I'm... I want people to pray for courage and opportunities to share the gospel. But sometimes, as we go to work and interact with unbelieving clients and sit around unbelieving coworkers and drive, you know, sit on the bus or the train with unbelievers and then go home and, and have unbelieving parents and unbelieving siblings and then we pray that the Lord would bring someone into your life that you can share the gospel with, uh, that's like the, you know, the stereotypical Thanksgiving dinner, you know, piles and piles of food. And, and hey, uh, Roger, can you pray for our meal? Yes, Lord, please, if some miraculous way we're so hungry that you could provide some sort of food, just a morsel. And all you got to do is open your eyes, you know. I got to move the turkey just to put my elbows on the table to pray. The opportunities are all around us. The grace should motivate us to proper service. Not legalism, but service because of what he has done for us. And we see that Paul gives, us, gives all the credit to God from being set apart before birth to his current ministry among the Gentiles. It's all God. It's all God. In other words, Paul is saying, don't look at me. You you think I'm great? You think I'm a great preacher? You're thankful I discipled you? I led you to the Lord? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And we've seen four facets of saving grace. God's completed decree. God's categorical determination. God's contented disclosure. And God's consequential designation. But now it's the so what, right? How do we apply this? We talked about this a little bit in terms of service. But how do we practically understand that we are called in grace, saved in grace, and serving grace? 
The answer is very simple. It's so simple, right? You probably heard this before you were even a Christian. Count your blessings. Count your blessings. You choose to complain because there's a lot of good in your life. There's a lot of good that you don't deserve. We're used to it, right? We're used to things so we don't see it as God's grace. I mean, I'm looking around. Most of us remember when someone called you, you didn't go far because the phone was attached to the wall, right? You didn't reject calls because of who you had no idea who was calling. Could be grandma, could be a murderer. You have no idea, right? Huh? Who is it, right? And yet, ah, phone is so slow. Why? Because I can't get on the internet. Well, we've, had, we've had that internet on our phones for, what, three years now? Five years? I mean, this is crazy, right? Look, I'm not saying be, be taken advantage of, right? You, you, you order a steak and they give you a salad, right? You, you get what you paid for. But be thankful. Count your blessings, Remember that everything you have, you don't deserve. And I think that's the biggest challenge to serving properly, is thinking we deserve everything we have at home. Everything is God's grace. Yeah, but I put in the all-nighters in college. God gave you that ability. Yeah, but my IQ, God gave you that. God invented coffee so you could pull those all-nighters. I don't think he's a believer, but God created the man who invented Red Bull or whatever it was that kept you up at night, right? God gave you that intellect. God gave you that job. God gave you every cent in your bank account. Can I be just really personal and practical with you? Francis earlier mentioned I have three boys that are here. Um, Our middle son is four years old. And if you see him later, uh, he's got his mom's curly hair. He's really cute acts like a normal kid, except you'll probably think he's around two because he's small for his age. My son's sick. He's sick. He was born with what they call chromosome microdeletion. I don't remember my high school biology, but I think chromosomes come in pairs, right? He's missing one side of one pair. He was delayed in everything. This probably resonate more with you who have kids. I think it was still at uh, 18 months, he wasn't really crawling yet. Couldn't even sit up. Then we found out he has a disease. It's an autoimmune disease, no cure. It's called eosinophilic esophagitis. I know what you're thinking, oh, that old thing. I'm just kidding. It's basically a food-triggered disease. You know, we, we still tell, like, my mom who's, you know, was born in Taiwan, we still just tell her it's allergies because she doesn't get it. It's not allergies. It's a food-triggered disease, and basically there's a food that he eats that causes his white blood cells to attack his esophagus, and it could get scarring, and if we keep feeding him that, he'll stop eating, and he'll have to get surgery, and it's this whole thing, and that's part of why he's so small. Right? He also was born with sensory issues, all, all this kind of thing. Uh, you know, he's, he's in the ER three, four times a year. You know, I joke with people, the nice thing about that is if I get two more punches on my ER punch card, I get a free 12-inch sub. You know, he's just in there so much that when my wife goes in there, the security guard doesn't ask for an ID. She just prints the badge, you know. And uh, when he turned one, at his first birthday, 
you know how it is, first birthday, he doesn't have friends, you just invite people from church and stuff, right? And this was a celebration to us. It was a celebration of God's grace. Because I counted from the day he came out of my wife's womb to his first birthday, and most of this was in the latter half of the year when we figured out what was going on. He had been to a doctor, the ER, or therapist 57 times in approximately six or seven months. And people ask me, like, how do you... How do you deal with that? How can you be happy about that? And this is what I I tell them, and I truly believe this. And I'll tell you, this perspective has changed my life. I truly believe that if my little Ethan came out of the womb, breathed one breath, and then died, that is one breath more than I deserve. I don't deserve a healthy kid. I don't deserve any kids. I mean, you look in Scripture and say, what do we deserve? What do we earn? It's pretty clear you've earned hell, and that's it. Do you get that, friends? Anything better than hell is God's grace. Nothing has to change about your life for you to appreciate life and be filled with joy and appreciate God's grace. It's all about perspective. This is what it is. It's not about, well, if I get a better job, if I finally get a home, if we finally have kids, if I finally get married. No, it's just about perspective. It's about perspective. How do you see things? Do you see everything in your life as God's grace, or do you just complain about everything like the rest of America does? You know, it reminds me of the Israelite armies and David. Remember, the Israel armies, they saw Goliath, and they were shaking in fear. And this little kid, this little shepherd comes out, sees the same guy, and says, what's the big deal? God's in control, isn't he? It wasn't that he was blind. It wasn't that they did a switcheroo, right? Oh, David's coming. Let's switch some small guy so he's confused and, and doesn't understand, right? Big Goliath, when the Israelites are there, when David comes out, they bring out the small guy, right? No, they say, saw the same guy. You know, it wasn't like when the Israelite armies were looking, they brought out John Crick, and then David came, they brought out Francis. No, it was the same guy, same huge guy. It was just their perspective was different. One was trusting and being thankful in the Lord, and one wasn't. When I was learning Albanian, when I was on the mission field, we had an Albanian tutor, and maybe you've done this in learning a language, she suggested that we get a bunch of uh, note cards and just take tape and label things in our house with the Albanian word. So even when you're not trying to study, you're looking around and, and you look at the window and that's Dritarin and look at the door and that's Darren and that's, the dog is Chenny. You wouldn't put a postcard card on dog, but you get it. Everything was labeled. And I think that's our problem. We label everything. But we label it negatively. That guy was rude to my kid two years ago. That refrigerator isn't cold enough. This car needs an oil change. And all we see is the negative in everything. The perspective we need to have is understand God's grace. And first of all, everything is labeled as I don't deserve it. And then you go further. And you label your car and say, thankful for this car, it's better than the bus. 
or you label the bus, it's better than walking. And we need to be careful. Look, even the people in, you know, in poor parts of this country or in other countries who are believers and have nothing, that's still God's grace. Everything is God's grace. Sickness, the ability to be able to talk to someone on their dying bed, on their, you know, that's God's grace. Your bodies, that's God's grace. Even the ability that you can apply for a job no matter how many times you get rejected, that is God's grace. The ability to be sad when your foster child has to leave your home, that's God's grace. I mean, look at Johnny Erickson Tana. She's done more for the cause of Christ as a quadriplegic than she could have ever as a fully abled human. She sees all of that as God's grace. And I was, I was actually at a, a wedding last night where the, the father of the groom is friends with, with that family. And he once told me, he said, you don't, you don't know, you can't really know because of her ministry really how needy she is physically till you see her husband doing everything. I mean, everything. Feeding her, bathing her, taking her to the bathroom. And I don't know them personally, but I believe that they would say, this is God's grace. You think that marriage turned out the way they expected, the way they planned, but no, they just trust in God's grace. Again, friends, anything above hell is God's grace. How are you living this life? I'm not saying it's easy. This is challenging. But it's a reality that overwhelms. It's the basis of who we are, our very existence. You've got to understand this. And let me just share, you know, let me just share one more story about our kids. This is not in my notes, but in January, um, I was officiating a wedding. No big deal. It's, it's what pastors do. And, uh, but it was really, really, uh, okay, it's a big deal. Right? It's a big deal for the couple. John's laughing at me. But, I mean, I'm not saying, like, I did a wedding. Look how special I am, right? It's, it's part of the job, right? And, but this, is, this was a very a special wedding to me because it was the first time my two older boys, our, our third is just a baby, were asked to be uh, ring bearers. So I was like, man, this is a big deal. The Chen boys all in the same wedding, right? And, and my wife and I are, are sentimental to a fault, I think, hence the tie today, right? <laughs> and, um, and so I was so excited, and on top of everything else, uh, Ethan also has normal allergies, like a lot of your kids. You know, we got an EpiPen and all this stuff. And he started vomiting a lot the day before the wedding. And my in-laws were visiting, and it turned out they were making cookies, and they had cross-contaminated with the sprinkles that he can eat with some egg or something. And so, you know, already he's too small. We need every calorie counts so when he throws up, we're like, ugh, just because he needs the calories to grow. And believe it or not, the nutritionist actually said, you know, boba's really good, like allergy-free and high in calories, right? So, and he really likes it. So my wife, Jenny, is like, let's go get boba. You've been throwing everything up. And she drives to his, fa- driving to his favorite boba store. And this is now the day of the wedding. He starts throwing up in the car. So she pulls out and... My son is throwing up on some stranger's lawn, and this stranger comes out of her house. And she goes, 
can I help you? I'm a nurse. And diagnosed and said he needs to go to the ER. I think he's, he's having trouble breathing. Turns out he's in anaphylaxis, right? Delayed anaphylaxis. So he got to go to the ER. My wife calls me. We're going to miss the wedding. You got to go. You got to go get our oldest son. I said, you have the car. So I run, you know, I rush. She comes home. She takes me to my mom's house. She's out of town. So I borrow, basically steal because she's not there, her car. <laughs> put my, you know, change the car seats. And we go to this wedding. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Bay Area. And you've driven in Half Moon Bay. And it's right there on the ocean. And that's where the wedding was. And I just want to share this with you because it's just a simple, practical way that we can trust and know God is gracious. I was just bummed out. I'm worried about my son. And I'm driving and I'm looking at these roaring waves. I know, a little cheesy. But I'm looking at these waves as I know my son is in the emergency room for the umpteenth time. And I didn't look at those waves and go, man, Mother Nature is amazing. I didn't look at those waves and say a prayer and say, maybe there's a God and maybe she will hear my prayer and help my son. I looked at those waves and said, there is a creator out there who knows exactly what's going on, who is sovereign over this, and loves my son in the emergency room more than I ever will or can. God's grace, my friends. Just look out the window. You find your life complaining, you find your life difficult, just look at the skies, look at the sun. And if you still have trouble with that, go try to create that. Go to a lab. Go wherever. Try to create a cloud. Try to create the sun. Try to create an ant that's crawling on your tree. My friends, when you look at all that God is, and when you understand how sinful we are, logically, he should have nothing to do with us. He should hate, not love. But God is not a God of our imaginings. He is a God of love, he is a God who has reached down. He is God. He is a God who gave the ultimate sacrifice, my friends. He is a God of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is always a privilege to be with your people who have received your grace, who have experienced your grace, who know your grace. But, Lord, we know we are complainers. We know we are, have an air of self-entitlement so much. Uh, even seeing your grace in the expansion of our global economy and how well so many of us are doing in our jobs and our finances. And Lord, just guard us from getting cocky. Guard us from getting arrogant. Guard us from just thinking everything is ours and that we did it. It's our family and our money. These are all gifts from you, and may we always be reminded on a daily basis of your immeasurable grace, of your immeasurable blessings. Lord, it's, we know the height of it is salvation, but it goes so much far beyond that. Lord, if there's, there are believers here, which I think is, is all of us who, who just grumble sometimes and complain and sigh and roll our eyes, May you at just that perfect moment remind us of the blessings we have, physical and spiritual. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of who we are as sin-sick, depraved minds before a holy, gracious, redeeming God. 
Make us those who rejoice. Make us those who are constantly meditating on what we do deserve, hell, and what we don't deserve, everything you have given us. And we pray this in your wonderful, matchless, gracious name.